my friend Nick asked me to talk to you for a minute. He, he thought you needed a little talking to about insanity, so he, he went to the expert because I'm insane. It's documented. I've been to doctors. I've had the meds and everything. I'm crazy. And I sound jocular, but I'll tell you, it's frightening. And right now, I'm in the midst of it, and I'm taking a positive tack on it this time around, because I could really dive down in the dumper if I... Ch I've got mail. Somebody emailed me. I'm here in utter isolation, and someone has reached out, and I'll guarantee you who it is. Now, I'm wishing it was my ex-girlfriend who's driven me to madness, but it's probably my wacky friend in California who's the only person who would still be awake at this hour sending me emails about alien abductions and political conspiracy theories. And I'll tell you, I'm so positive that it's not my ex and that it's my wacky friend in California that I'm not even going to get up to check. So I'm making progress because a week ago I would have lurched across the room I don't know if that's the right word, because lurch kind of implies slowness, kind of an Adams family thing. I would have rocketed across the room to check that email, but I found a little inner resolve, and I'm going to sit here on the futon and chat with you for a moment. You want to know about insanity? Well, have you ever felt like you were going crazy? Or are you crazy? Sometimes I'm at the office and I, I feel isolated in my mental illness. And then I look about the room and I consider each person in there. I consider all the people at work and now that I've gotten to know them, really, they're all crazy. They just don't know it. We all have this facade, this mask that we put on out there in public, hiding all the busyness in our minds, all the anxieties and insecurities and self-esteem issues and fears. It's a fear culture, so I would imagine it's a real Petri dish a real cultural experiment in the encouragement of insanity and the breakdown of good feelings about ourselves. We're scared of terrorists and bombs and disease and aging and loss of sexual potency. Good Lord, think of all those Viagra spams that you get if you're a guy or Botox injection. You gotta have those hot dog lips these days to be sexy if you're a gal. It is one of those things where you do really want to just like pinch yourself at all points and just be like, I'm not a mental case who thinks he's working in a mental hospital, right?
that would be the worst. It's just yeah. like everyone be like, oh, that's that patient who thinks that he's working here. Because you do do these kind of like menial tasks where you're really just checking up where like everyone's going on like, yeah, on a non, on, on this grid that's not high tech at all. Just being like, oh, they're in the living room. Like, they're in this thing. They're all different types of people who are coming to this hospital doctors your school teachers you know people who are very fitness conscious but are doing like lines of coke at night to to try and like feel better i just started there so it's kind of like a very abrupt change in my life i can definitely relate to the patients there because i'm still getting to know what everything is it's crazy you know i go into work and i'm like all right this is what i do you know you swipe in and you go upstairs and you get a cup of coffee but after that anything could happen there was a girl in the adolescent unit, probably about 16, I would say, refusing to take her meds. And I get a call from downstairs that we're doing a show of force. Which is basically we assemble every large person, or one large person at least, from every unit in this specific location. So I went upstairs, same old rigmarole, put on the gloves, you know, I took my tie off so she couldn't strangle me, and, you know, went into the room where she was, and she was sitting on the bed in her room, completely... Like, just not even in her, her head. She was, like, sort of sitting on the bed, like, holding her knees, you know, just kind of very scared and very curled up into a ball, very defensive. The nurse wanted her to take her, her medication. You know, there was about five or six other psych techs there, mostly, I think at that time it was all women. I was the only guy. I was a little scared because I'm not the, the biggest guy in the world. Um, but the nurse, you know, gave her a choice. She said, you can either take the drugs by mouth or you could take this and she pulled out probably the biggest needle I had ever seen in my life she looked at it and she was just like I'm not taking either all of a sudden she just blew up she's like fuck you fuck this I want out of here you don't have to keep me here and we're like no I'm afraid I'm afraid we do actually have to keep you here because you're not in control so you know it was this sort of minute of like kind of tension and confusion between the staff and the social workers there and she's like you know she kind of looks at us and she's like all right do your thing so can you describe what we're looking at well, this is the gym okay and what's interesting to me is that in 1911 when this hospital was built that the doctors thought it was important for patients to move um and so for many years when i was an attendant here in this hospital in 1966-67, I used to come down here with the patients all the time and play basketball with them and go on to move. I go on to be involved in rhythmical activities like passing balls and doing things and rushing around. And with that would come of a lot of laughter and enjoyment. And then when the era of psychopharmacology, of drugs, came in, uh, very typically to my mind, this, this gigantic space was converted into office for to take drugs and so drugs are about people becoming immobilized and taking a substance in order to change the way they feel uh-huh. which is very ironic for me because my current research is very much on how people can change mental functioning through movement and doing things there's nothing like a little insanity to find you home alone every night trying to distract yourself with this and that television or food or googling things up anything to keep the mind off the topics that produce fear 
those gears start working and once they're in motion it's difficult to stop them issues triggers things that stir up unpleasant memories guilt and shame and sadness it's hard to be a human being and I'm failing miserably so far I'm 48 never been married can't keep a relationship I'm underachieving. I've got a modicum of talent, but I'm not parlaying it into anything significant. I've never owned a house. I'm not a bad-looking fellow. I'm one of those guys that people see and go, he's a good-looking guy. How come he doesn't have a gal? I'll tell you why. It's because I'm crazy. And there's nothing like love to trigger the brain chemicals that set me off and have me diving into the deep end in no time. I went through a uh, this uh, traumatic breakup with my first serious love. I was just lost, massively depressed. I dropped out of college. My life needed changing. When people tell you that, oh, I want to go into something where I'm helping people, what, it, what they're really saying is, I am really lost. I need so much help myself. The, the position was called a psychiatric assistant. Your primary goal on any given shift was not to get hurt. Your primary mission was to always watch the back of another staff member. We were the only locked psychiatric ward other than the state hospital for the criminally insane, those that had been actually convicted and committed criminally because of a violent crime. And so we, oftentimes before someone would go to trial, because they had not been convicted of anything, and, and oftentimes not even really arrested yet, they would be brought to us, and they, basically you had to kind of get them to be unpsychotic so that they could be arraigned. You can't just haul somebody who's clearly crazy into a courtroom and then you know, try and enter a plea. There was a, a notorious and very frightening murder, and a young man was brought in, and uh, word got out really quickly that he was this prime suspect in this murder, which, that puts you on edge. <laughs> that's That's even out of the ordinary for what is not an ordinary living situation at all. He was, generally speaking, very docile uh, in appearance. So when this young man was on the station, a very good friend of mine, uh, another psychic assistant, uh, went into, you know, he, he was a very jovial guy. He was just a very happy-go-lucky guy, just a nice guy and he walked into a room and was promptly assaulted but it was i don't remember if exactly if what i was doing maybe we were getting dinner for people you know that kind of thing where he might have been at the other end of the the room i got distracted i don't know it was you know how it all happened but it was just that thing where he walked into a room i saw him do that and i turned away for something and i turned back just a moment later and he, he just didn't come out. He hadn't come out. And he just should have. Um, 
So I just looked at this other uh, sex assistant that I was working with at the time, who, who was also a good friend and very trusted, and his eyes and mine just met, and we both looked down the room to this room, and we didn't even have to say anything. We just bolted. I was at the laundry mat the other day, and that's not a good thing if you're trying to hook up. And if you're in your early 20s or something, it's fine. You've got your sweatshirt on, and there's a girl putting her clothes into the dryer, and you make eye contact like in the movies, and you chat, and you get a date, and you like her tattoo of a beat on her left shoulder, something funky like that. But when you're in your 40s, being at the laundry mat just spells loser. And I'm a loser. I was in there. It was about 100 degrees. Me and this older woman kind of, she's kind of afraid of me because I'm looking weird. So I'm trying to smile and say a few things. And it's only making it worse. But I'm there. And I see this National Geographic. You know, they've got this stack of old dog-eared magazines that have been read 700 times. And a few religious tracts laying around and auto sales magazines magazines and condo rental magazines and do not attempt to wash your horse blanket. And I'm looking at this National Geographic, the chemistry of love, and I, I'm wondering why I'm freaking out so bad this time that I've been dumped again. Usually I can move along quickly, but I used to look better and it was easier to meet a new gal but now I can't get a second look I'm fearful I'm anxious I'm insecure I'm doubting my potency all kinds of horrible late 40s men issues and I'm reading this article and it's saying that the chemicals triggered by the act of falling in love are almost identical to those of the mind of someone who suffers from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh, well, I want to hear your stalker I mean, story. Yeah, I mean, the stalker story, I mean, I have got a fair amount of just crazy. Okay. But for this one, I might almost want my name to be anonymous on this one. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just Jesse A. Okay. Cause and and people who have been listening to the show won't notice that you've been on before and identified. Well, I'm sure she will ever find me, but I'm still petrified of this. Like, she's... It's a very, very, very scary story, man. I mean... This is important that it was the most in the history of my relationships. This was the most even handed, most mutual breakup of all time. You have everyone say, Oh, it was a mutual thing. Usually that's just a you know, bunch of crap. This was sincerely her just being like, Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe next semester when we both have time, this would be good. 
and we just sincerely were like, fine, broke up, and it was cool. It was a year and two months after that when I came back to my room and it was covered in fruit, 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 fruit. Ten bananas, apples all over the floor, oranges. I'd like, be opening my drawer to go and start like writing a paper and there'd just be a note inside of it that just had like a weird message that was like in Swedish. Things that were like, Schlarsch. China rose. I went to my friend said, you know, we've got all this fruit in my room and no one really knew what the hell was going on. So I started locking my room at that point. One of the psych techs looked at me and she said, all right, you get the right arm, I'll get the left arm, and you two get the legs. And we just went for it. She was just like, started screaming. It's never, you know, they teach us in such a way that it's like, oh, you, you, you know, you do this and then you get them down on the ground. And it's like getting them down to the ground is kind of like a lot more steps involved. So it was like grabbed her arm and she's like fighting me with her arm. And, you know, she's 16, but she's very wiry and she, her adrenaline, I'm sure, was pumping so that she was just like putting out all kinds of energy. And so we just sort of grabbed her in any way that we could. And just turned her around onto the bed, and the needle, you know, goes right into her ass. You pull her pants down and stuck the needle in her ass, and it takes forty minutes for it to kick in. So we're sitting there with her, you know, my hand on her back and my arm on her, or my hand on her arm, with her, you know, my hand on her back and my arm on her back and my hand on her arm and my arm on her back and my hand on her back and my hand on her arm. And she's like, you know, fighting violently and everybody's like trying to get her situated and she managed to turn around on the bed so her head was kind of in between the ball and the bed and so we tried to move her back onto the bed so it was a little bit more comfortable for us because, you know, you can imagine us just sort of huddled around this girl. And um, all of a sudden, you know, she, she stopped sort of twitching and sort of gave up. But it was a good half an hour of just sitting there waiting for her for these meds to kick in. It's really amazing how, you know, it, and I came from the same sort of bias that, you know, meds, oh, meds, what are they, you know, it's kind of fucked up that, you know, they're always prescribing meds, but some people just have this chemical imbalance and they don't, they don't realize that or, you know, none of, none of you realize it and you, they just act out, but as soon as they have the right medication, they're fine, you know, they're, they're normal, they're at their, at their baseline is what they call it, they're, they're at what, where they are normally supposed to be and, as far as circumstances goes, maybe it's because she just was on this this mental institution and she was getting a little worked up and, you know, you realize that you're locked on this floor and you don't have any way of, like, going out into the sunshine or anything and it's just sort of fairly confusing time, I'm sure, for the patient, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. If they can only get Thorazine every six hours and you've just given them this massive dose, it's only going to be good for two hours. And the final four hours before they can get another hit of Thorazine is going to be a living hell. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. Yeah, The Exorcist uh, came out both as a book and then it was made into a movie. 
And we saw some patients coming in. They were, they were possessed. They came in and they were possessed. That was a trickle in the booklet, but when the, it was made into a movie, then it, it was floodgates were open. Um, this was right at the time when you know, there was an awful lot of uh, LSD use, uh, just in the general population, particularly of young people. And so <laughs> it got to be uh, an epidemic. There were some times when we had three, four people at a time admitted who were possessed. But it was astonishing when, when you would get the history, usually from friends or relatives that would bring these people in, and you would find out, oh, yeah, well, he, you know, he dropped like five tabs of acid, you know, and then he went to, you know, a, a midnight showing of The Exorcist or some of that and saw it like four times in a row, <laughs> tripping the entire time on acid. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I, uh, oh, oh, well I'm surprised he's uh, possessed. I mean, you know, hell, I, I would have thought I was possessed if I just, you know, saw the movie five times in a row without the acid. Hello, Reagan. Instead of sitting out watching the sunrise out in New Mexico and communing with God, you are instead tripping heavily for maybe eight, 12, 24 hours, and you are battling Satan. And that's all you see, see. and that's all you know. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. Is that ultimate pure evil is trying to seize your soul. I'm Damien Carroll. And I'm Damien Carroll. You know, you would take these, you know, restraints, you'd attach them to their wrists and their ankles, usually. Invo this would involve a lot of people, <laughs> because if you're doing that, there's a lot of kicking, screaming, fighting, punching, spitting, you know, going on. And, and so it would take several people. You can imagine it was sort of, you know, like trying to thread a needle while, while somebody is yanking and, and you know, punching at you. And so somebody would restrain a given limb. The other person would attach this cuff. And then the uh, leather strap would go around and, and would be secured, you know, like with a, a lock, to the bed frame. And it would really secure you down, you would think. But uh, one time after a huge struggle with a particularly psychotic person, and it was really difficult, and, and we had um, you know, them in six-point restraints, and it was just like this titanic battle just to get this done and it took us a long time and everyone was just exhausted <laughs> and we stepped back for that moment when it was finally you know safe for us to all let go <laughs> and honest to god this very young slight man who had been just shaking and quaking and struggling at these restraints and, and shouting and, and cursing and, and uh literally lifted up off the bed, two, three inches, hangs there for, I, I cannot swear, I don't know how long, but I know everyone in the room sat and looked at it and basically levitated up. If it weren't for the fact that at the time I was a a very lapsed, fallen away Catholic and, and probably about as agnostic 
atheist as I ever was in my entire life. And so my rational mind would not allow me to believe that they were really possessed. But I have to say, if there were any doubts in my mind <laughs> about how right I was about that, those were the times. You're confronted for eight-plus hours a day, every day, with challenges to your notion of what is real and what's sane and who's sane. And just by collecting your paycheck and walking out to the parking lot doesn't confirm your sense of reality. The, the common joke, the common joke at the hospital, particularly at the end of the shift when you're leaving, the only difference between the patients and the staff is that we've got keys. The office that I had here in this hospital used to be the office of Timothy Leary, the LSD king. And almost everybody I know in those days had taken LSD, and including in this hospital. People also studied it here for a while. And so I had taken LSD a few times. And when I first met very, very, quote-unquote, crazy patients, um, something really resonated with that from my LSD experience. In, in what way? Because I knew that when you take those drugs that your brain gets scrambled and you see different realities. So I was actually quite fascinated by their crazy way of thinking and talking. And I thought, yeah, I know, I know what that feels like because I've been there on, on LSD. And so I was amazed by them. And what's very clear, I remember two patients particularly well, this assistant superintendent, assistant principal of a school here and he had become schizophrenic and clearly felt very very embarrassed about it and he was maybe the first the first day I was in the hospital uh, he was sitting in the community meeting and he was talking ragtime and I just sat there with my mouth open I was nodding really saying yeah I really know what you're talking about and he was amazed by this I was not a doctor yet I was still a medical student uh, that somebody really uh, thought he was cool and terrific because he felt so ashamed about his having a falling apart. And so we formed a very deep relationship, him and I, because he, he really had the sense that, that I respected him for where he came from. Is, is there also a danger, though, associated with that, of like going in and, and like accepting their version of reality? An interesting question. I, I, I never saw it that way. Uh, you know, I've, in my normal mind, I'm fairly well f uh, rooted in reality, and I think being able to move into that other world to some degree is really what psychiatry, to a large degree, is about. It's to really join people where they are, but stay firmly rooted in reality as most people more or less define it, right. and help them to re-enter our world. I think, it's, but to also have a very deep respect for what they go through and not necessarily being bent on abolishing that in order to make contact with people is very important. And that's something I, I learned very deeply here, is to really live with, be with, listen to whatever people had to offer. There was a person in seclusion, in the seclusion room down here, and totally mute, um, s smearing their feces around, and 
um, just out of it. And I would sit with him for an hour a day or something. And then just sit there quietly, talking a little bit to a person who was non-responsive. And then one day he came over to me and handed me a turd as a gift. And so it's the first opening to another human being. <laughs> like, you know. And so making contact really takes that degree of acceptance of trying to make a contact with another per- person who lives in a separate reality. And, uh, and we did fairly well. He was a, continued to be a very disturbed person. But making contact with the person who lives in a totally separate reality, uh, there's something very beautiful about it. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Then the really tip-off point was, um, I was in my room and, she, and I got a knock and she was at the door. And I thought, that's me. I'm obsessed about my ex. I can't get her out of my mind. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm aching. I'm writing bad poetry. She had two of my books of my CDs in her hand and she was crying. Every word of love, every ardorous gesture on my part is being met with indifference and repulsion. And she said, she was, she was just apologizing, saying, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. I took these and I shouldn't have taken them and so I just really needed it and she put, she put them in my hands and then handed me copies of every CD in these two booklets and these are big booklets like there were probably about 200 cds she had stolen from my car she's distancing herself from me though she's still friendly the emails are getting shorter the calls are getting shorter the x's and o's are disappearing from the emails the innuendo is completely out the window okay this probably is the source of the fruit this is probably the source of the weird messages uh, that's pretty that's pretty insane I'm being morphed into the old friend category the kind of mentorish older ex-boyfriend that one a go-to guy for crisis points in the life when one needs to be reassured that they're loved and admired but Stay away from me. That's the general message. Finally... At five in the morning one morning, she started playing a Madonna song with my name on it at full blast. It like hooked up speakers to it. Which song? Um, something about Jesse and Rainbows. I don't know what it is. She was a floor below me and it sounded like I was playing a CD in my room. And I just heard this screaming outside. I'm like, I fucking love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. 
<laughs> it started banging on my door. And again, I just had to think that it was that it was like a friend or something or someone drunk. And I was almost about to like answer because up doing a paper and being like, okay, guys, was until it hit me. Noah actually called up, called my phone, and was like, dude, like, get in your room. Like, it's her. It's her. And, like, locked my room and was totally freaked out. And she was banging on it and basically had to be taken away from the scene. So you called. And then, no, someone else, I mean, the whole entire dorm was up. I would have thought she had Marshall Stacks in her room. It was the loudest music I'd ever heard. But then when... Security came. She's like, "No, I'm just in love. I'm sorry. It was a little bit loud." And it was like, "Okay, that's fine." And then, like, well, wasn't the security guy like, "Congratulations!" Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, the guy was like, yeah, congratulations for being in love." And she's like, "Happy at that point." And then she took off, and no one could find her. So, patient here, who every night would cut her neck from, she'd find some glass somewhere, or a piece of pottery, something, and every night. She would cut herself from ear to ear on her neck uh-huh. and open it up. And about three o'clock in the morning, and we'd be on call and we'd come in, the sleepy head, and stitch people up, stitch her up. And she would just sit there, sort of laughing at us, smiling, um, sort of treating us like poor suckers in some ways. And about the third or fourth time it happened, three o'clock in the morning, I said, hey, you know, I can't stand your smile and I can't stand the fact that you wake me up night after night. Tonight I will not give you anesthesia when I sew you up. I'll just sew you up with a knee and I'll teach you a lesson. That's the sort of relationship we had with patients also. It was very alive and more feelings and anger and I had the power as a doctor to do that. And she laughed at me when I did it. Uh, and I said, why are you laughing? She said, you know, Doc, you don't, know, you don't know anything. You know, I cut myself because I don't feel anything. And so I actually cut myself in order to see if I can make myself feel something. But that's where you learn something about psychiatry because that, that set up a whole piece of research on my part is that so what happens that people cut themselves and I got fascinated by that so that's about 7% of the of people in America take razor blades and cut their arms and do weird things to their bodies and most of us don't do that so when I'm upset about something or over stressed out go play tennis or I may have a gin and tonic but a few people take a razor blade and cut themselves so right. you why the hell did you, how do people learn how to do that? Because right. it wouldn't do anything for us. And so um, I got friendly with about seven people in this hospital who used to cut themselves on a regular basis. And I was here as a faculty member. And, and um, I'd befriend them and talk with them and sort of become their friend. And I'd say, you know, next time that you want to, cu- to cut yourself, come to my office because I really would like to see what you look like and, and study it. And they liked me and so they would come to my office and say, oh, I really have to cut myself. And I'd talk with them what they felt like and I actually uh, do some blood and I did an experiment with them to, to actually put a hand in ice cold water and to see how long they could stand that uh, before they pulled their hand out. And it turned out indeed that they would keep their hand in water um, 
and I, th I had to pull it out before it they turned blue. Right. Um, and then, so clearly there was something in the body uh, that made him do that. And so I thought maybe this has to do with uh, that people have opioids, the opioid-type substances in their bodies that get secreted. So what I did then did is that I got a drug that, that counteracts the opioid system in the body, and they would come to see me and say, would it be okay if I would give you some of the drug to, to decrease, to change the chemicals in your body and say, sure. Um, and they do that, and they would put their hand in the ice water, and after a while they would pull their hand out because it started to hurt. Right. And so we, we discovered something there, that the opioid system is involved in self, self-mutilation. And then they would say, you know, I now can feel things again, but it doesn't feel as good as cutting myself. I will still go home and cut myself. So I'm reading this article and it's talking about how orgasm is the way a woman decides on her mate. It's a peculiar, inexplicable thing in females that evolution has designed to help a woman pick her mate. And so I'm thinking, well, I wasn't generating enough of the big O's to keep the dance going and now I'm being jettisoned and those... Well, I don't want to go down that path, but... Well, now I'm having trouble maintaining the jocularity, and I... I'm entering a depressed phase out of the manic thing. You just actually witnessed the transitional period. And it's going to be difficult to finish this piece for Nick. And I, I probably should start wrapping it up anyway because I'm starting to wonder about that email. Who emailed me? I hope it's her. Wouldn't it be great? But it's a little late for her. She's an early sleeper, but she's on vacation, which is a cause for great anxiety. I'm imagining all the carrot-shaped lumberjacks that are catching her eye while I'm sitting here. Whoa. There's a metaphor. The police are chasing someone down the highway. Someone's got trouble, a speeder, and they must be apprehended. Nothing more dangerous than somebody five miles over the limit when there's no one on the highway. But it generates a lot of dough for the community. Pads the public coffers when they make those speeding stops. She came back to my room that night. I've just never seen someone crying and laughing and then, like, swimming back and then kind of getting, like, sexual for, like, a second. And me be like, what the hell? And I just be like, Ugh, and then start crying and then laughing. And what it came down to was that it was all about music, the whole thing. And it was, I was the cosmic, cosmic embodiment. embodiment of the sound. the sound being like the spiritual sound of the universe and that we were going to take over the world together. But the thing is, you got to remember, two weeks of dating this girl and a mutual breakup has meant for me years upon years of just like quasi-terror. St I still think I'm going to hear from her.
she found my home number from where I grew up. And, I, and however she found that is just beyond me. Next year at school, at our house off campus, we were going in to our house all dark, went back in, we're walking in a room, and turned on the lights, and she was just standing in our living room. She said that she, she sympathized with Jack Nicholson's character from The Shining, which is oh, by, far, by far the scariest image you could have. Until people really told me that it was mean and cruel, my plan was going to be that if I ever saw her, just to play along with it, I would just be like, yes, like, we have reached phase three in our takeover of the world. Meet me in three years in Seattle. If I am not there, wait seven years. If you see me or contact me in the meantime, plan Garshapon is screwed. That would be the only way I could get this mess behind me. But the thing is, you have to remember, two weeks... This is the last unit, it used to call, be called the intensive care unit in the hospital. And so as medications made it possible for more and more people to be discharged, only the most violent and disturbed people eventually came to the hospital, and this was the last unit before it was closed. Um, and this unit became a very scary place. Uh, he had some of the scariest patients here. At that time, by the time, the hospital no longer had any choice about who to take and who not to take, so it became really a repository of very dangerous people and became a, a very scary atmosphere. And I'd come up here and not understand how people could survive in this degree of terror that was here at all times and the degree of violence that might occur here. And so the patients were afraid of the staff, staff were afraid of the patients, Patients were afraid of each other. Nurses were withdrawn to the nursing station. This is like a hellhole. And I'd come here and think, how can people be in this place? And it was part of my thinking about trauma, which by the time I knew a lot about, that made me think that these people probably grew up in places with this degree of terror. Mm-hmm. And this was in some ways familiar to them. And in some ways they were at home, because they grew up in atmospheres of terror, because I think for anybody else, they would have done anything to get out of here. Uh, so I, I thought about it a lot, and I was amazed by, and very pained by, by what was happening here. Uh, there was a meeting for the faculty, for the doctors here, in which the head of this particular unit talked about that two women had said they had been raped on the unit. Uh, and then she said, in these alleged rapes, she, said she didn't believe the women. And at that point, I became so upset in that if you no longer believe that... When you feel the terror in this place, you know that people are doing terrible things to each other, to no longer be, take what people say seriously, it's just awful. It's really just... It's a terrible... I left this place with a great deal of pain, actually.
that's so here we are in a totally fallen apart day treatment center at the top of the hospital with peeling paints and broken ceilings all around us and broken glass and there is a blackboard here that says in breath breathing in I calm down my body and mind out breathing out I smile and so somewhere at the end of this hospital somebody was teaching the patients what we do in our trauma center is to how to use your breath to change your autonomic arousal system that is very nice for me to see <laughs> after telling this terrible story It's very depressing to go back there because you really see it for what it was. And we were just filled with optimism and hope, you know. Um, what it was being what? For, you know, the, the human despair and the human misery. Right. And the, the deprivation. And, you know, it's just... You see it now and you see these lives. I mean, you, that's all, you know, when you go to a fallen down building belonging to the past, that's what you're confronted with is death and the transitoriness of things but this is not like um, going to Versailles and seeing the transitoriness of King Louis XIV it's about like these people who actually never had a life um, and so the question is very much what what makes it possible to to stare this horror in the face as we did um, because you know our patients were very disturbed, very crazy, very uh, hopeless in many ways and yet the hopelessness never really, never got the better of us. And why was that? And I think the reason that is, is that we had an enormously supportive environment where people really emphasized no, the nobility of the, of the patients and the nobility of the human mind and soul. You know, we were, we were young princes in a way. You know, this was the, the, was most, the most prestigious psychiatry program in the U.S., and so there were 26 people in my year, lots and lots of people, lots of smart, interesting people, many of whom played music, had special gifts. And so there you were in this nut house together with some of the brightest people around. And we would laugh and joke and write musicals and, you know, we see who was the quickest, who was the wittiest, enormously competitive among ourselves. Uh, but there was we had an enormous amount of fun. These patients who we treated here were as hard and as hopeless as any patients one can ever see. But there was this enormous feeling of support to do the work that we did. I mean, you really feel valued and loved and treasured. You don't burn out. Yeah. And were the patients happy? Hard to know, you know. Right. Because they were very severely mentally ill. I want to check the email, but I do know it's my wacky friend in California telling me about something he's bought. He has a lot of money, buys gadgets, and it keeps him from thinking about his issues. I had a friend who took his life the other night. And, uh, 
Don't do that. As insane as you feel. Be a pain in the ass to everyone with your insanity. You know, make a sport out of it. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to be crazy, at least rustle people up these straight nick close to the vest proper people. Irritate them a little bit. Do off-the-wall things. Grimace a lot. And spin around in your office chair. You're here, damn it. Take advantage of it. You're on the right side of the grass. Who knows how long it'll last. As far as my ex goes, I love you, baby. You're always in my heart and soul. I'm actually the right one for you. Someday you'll realize it. When you're stuck with one of those aging carrot-shaped lumberjacks drinking his beer and knocking you around, and for my crazy friend in California, keep buying gadgets and keep sending me your conspiracy theory emails. I love you too. And listeners, I don't know you, but I love you in the broad sense and I wish you well. Maybe we'll chat again one day soon, although it's been a bit of a one-way conduit, wouldn't you say? Just me yakking at you, but maybe you found a nugget in there of something that you related to. Take care of Nick, too. He's a nice fellow. He reached out to me. This is Clay Pigeon in Wisconsin. I'm insane. And so are you. We all are. It's a crazy world. Hang in there.